0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis And needing treatment for it. Welcome back and I appreciate all of you who listen into this podcast. Thank you very much for your support. This edition of Psychiatry Today will air first on America's Web Radio on May 13th and as always is pre-recorded for your listening pleasure. Now, this first item we're going to start with tonight is something that's a common complaint, something that I hear about a lot from my patients. And I thought, well, you know, there's probably a lot of people who suffer from this issue, so I definitely thought this is something I have to talk about. And that's late night eating, or night eating, or night binge eating. It's called a lot of different things, but uh, no matter what you call it, It's definitely a symptom that a lot of people experience. Uh, So let's get right into examining this article about late night snacking and is it actually your brain's fault? Well, new light has been shed on why maybe you or maybe your friends or your neighbors or maybe most everyone you know or a lot of people anyway tend to snack at night. Some areas of the brain don't get the same food high in the evening. The study also reports that participants were subjectively more preoccupied with food at night, even though their hunger and fullness levels were similar to other times of the day. Now, after gobbling the fourth Oreo in a row while bathed in refrigerator light, have you ever thought, hmm, that wasn't enough, and then proceeded to search for something more? Well, researchers at Brigham Young University have shed new light on why this happens. In this newly published study, exercise sciences professors and a neuroscientist used <coughs> magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to measure how people's brains respond to high and low-calorie food images at different times of the day. The results showed that images of food, especially high-calorie food, can generate spikes in brain activity, but those neural responses are lower in the evening. So you might overconsume at night because food is not as rewarding, at least not visually, At that time of day, it may not be as satisfying to eat at night, so you eat more to try to get satisfied. The study appears in the journal Brain Imaging and Behavior. Also reports that participants were subjectively more preoccupied with food at night, even though their hunger and fullness levels were similar to other times of the day. The intent of the study was to better understand if time of day influences neural responses to pictures of food. The researchers used functional MRI which enables scientists to look at thinking processes as they're represented in different areas of the brain in real time to monitor the brain activity of study subjects while they viewed images of food. The participants viewed 360 images during two separate sessions held one week apart, one during morning hours and one during evening hours. Subjects looked at images of both low-calorie foods, such as vegetables, fruits, fish, and grains, and high-calorie foods, like candy, baked goods, ice cream, and fast food. As expected, the researchers found greater neural responses to images of high-calorie foods. However, they were surprised to see lower reward-related brain activity to the food images in the evening. They thought the responses would be greater at night because we tend to overconsume later in the day. But just to know that the brain responds differently at different times of the day could have implications for eating. <clears throat> Nevertheless, researchers noted that the study is preliminary and additional work is needed to verify and better understand the findings. The next research steps would be to determine the extent that these neural responses translate into eating behavior and the implications for weight management. Well, it's not clear whether just the information or the knowledge that, hmm, you know, when we see images of food at night, they're not as satisfying to us, therefore we're going to chase down that, feeling of satisfaction by eating more you know is the knowledge of that information going to enable people to avoid or slow down this tendency to night eat and overeat at night not so much um, i think uh it's a great step in understanding this behavior but clearly uh we await scientists being able to take that information and find a practical way to enable people not to have these urges. Now sticking with the theme of food and the brain, this next article we're going to talk about is how a healthy diet is tied to a lower risk of cognitive decline. Now this is not news and certainly uh, we've talked before on this program about how if you want to stave off memory loss, especially from aging, then eating healthy certainly is a good thing to do. But we'll see what this latest study tells us. Older people who eat healthy, with more fruits and vegetables, nuts and fish in their diets, may be less likely to experience declines in thinking and memory over time according to a new international study. Now, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and fish sounds a lot like the Mediterranean or that uh, brain diet we talked about recently, right? It is likely that a healthy diet has effects on cardiovascular risk factors and cardiovascular disease, and that this is an important mechanism for reducing the risk of cognitive decline which would affect memory and thinking and attention concentration. The results were similar when researchers excluded people who had overt clinical events like stroke, suggesting that the benefit may also reduce the risk of cognitive decline for people without such clear indicators of advanced cardiovascular disease. As the study is observational, they can only say that a healthy diet was associated with a reduced risk of cognitive decline and cannot definitively say that there is a causal relationship. And while that's technically true, and it's important for researchers to be very balanced that way about the results of their work, I think we can safely say the weight of other evidence uh, from other studies argues in favor of a healthy diet preventing cognitive decline, uh, specifically a heart-healthy diet also being a brain-healthy diet. The researchers used data from two multinational randomized trials of a blood pressure medication. They included more than 27,000 men and women, pretty good sample size, who were 55 years of age and older, and who had a history of coronary, cerebral, or peripheral artery disease or high-risk diabetes, and who were followed until their death or having had a stroke, heart attack, or hospitalization. Half the participants were followed for less than five years. Participants filled out a 20-point food frequency questionnaire at the beginning of the trials, and completed a mini-mental state exam at least twice during their respective trials. Of the 27,000 total participants, 46, uh, 4,699, or almost 17%, experienced marked cognitive decline based on their mental state exams. The researchers used the Food Frequency Questionnaire to estimate how healthy people's dietary habits were, awarding higher scores to frequent consumption of foods like vegetables, fruits, nuts, soy proteins, and fish. Now, the top fifth of people with the healthiest diets were about 24% less likely to experience cognitive decline during the study than the bottom fifth with the worst diet scores. The research was reported in the journal Neurology. <clears throat> so the study shows that those with the healthiest diet tended to be more active and they were less likely to smoke and had a lower body mass index, or BMI. This suggests that the consumption of a healthy diet is likely to be associated with a healthy lifestyle in general. About 14% of people in the healthiest diet category had cognitive decline compared to 18% of those in the least healthy category after taking physical activity, high blood pressure, and any history of cancer into account. Well, what we'll do is we'll take a commercial break right here, and when we come back, we'll finish up this article about healthy eating and Dietary decline, and then we'll have much more mental health related news in the next segment. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back with you after this break.
1: Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills,
2: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's
1: AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news we're talking about how a healthy diet can stave off cognitive decline, even in people with a history of significant cardiovascular disease. Now, as foods and nutrients aren't consumed in isolation, and the reduction of intake of one food usually results in increased intake of other foods, the researchers think that rather than focus on particular foods... It's more important to focus on overall diet quality. For example, some of the reported benefits of healthy food choices may be lost or countermanded by unhealthy choices. The study wasn't designed to quantify how much or how little people should change their lifestyles to lower cognitive decline. and It's hard to make such conclusions. But it's interesting to notice that people in the top 20 percent of adherence to healthy diets only appear only appear, be the ones uh, who appear to be protected, uh, while the ones who <clears throat> only slightly adhere to these diets are not. Uh, so again, there may be an effect of diet, but it's a relatively modest one, and only if you're a very strict adherent to healthy diet. All study participants were at high risk for cardiovascular disease, so that's another reason why uh, the results may not have been as favorable as they otherwise could have been and while they're not necessarily generalizable to the broader population. Indeed, to be included in the study, participants had to report a history of cardiovascular disease or of diabetes, and they may have modified their diets after the diagnosis, along with being more at risk in order to uh, risk of experiencing accelerated cognitive decline during the follow up period. Well, there you go. I mean, <clears throat> I still think it's more solid evidence uh, healthy diet, healthy mind. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a couple of articles about depression and bipolar disorder. Uh, the first article makes the point that while there are connections, well, there are more connections than uh, people sometimes think between the two disorders, and the next article talks about how both of them impair thinking, cause a clouded or fuzzy thinking. Uh, So let's take a look first at how people with depression and bipolar disorder feel sadness differently. Depression and bipolar disorder both can cause people to go through periods of extreme sadness and despair, and even mental health experts may find it difficult to distinguish between the two disorders. But new research suggests these conditions may have very different patterns of brain activity. In a new study, researchers scanned the brains of people with clinical depression and other people with bipolar disorder and measured these individuals' reactions to emotional photographs. The researchers found differences in the amount of activity in brain areas involved in regulating emotion in bipolar patients compared with patients who had unipolar depression, a term used to distinguish the condition from bipolar disorder. So in other words, unipolar depression is a term we don't really use that much, but just to make the definite distinction between ordinary major depression versus bipolar depression, which takes place in patients who have highs in their mood as well as lows. Now, as psychiatrists, we have a big problem. Unless you know for a fact that someone has had episodes of mania or highs, or you've observed it yourself in that patient, it's very hard to distinguish unipolar depression from bipolar depression. This inability to tell which disorder a patient has is a problem because antidepressant medication usually isn't effective for treating people with bipolar disorder and antidepressants can even increase such a patient's risk of having a manic episode or cycling up and down between episodes of depression and mania. During manic episodes, a person with bipolar disorder may come agitated, euphoric, and sometimes psychotic. <clears throat> the new findings could lead to a better way of diagnosing and treating patients with these disorders. The study was published on May the 6th in the journal JAMA or Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. People with either depression or bipolar disorder may have bouts of severe depression and difficulty regulating their emotions, whether they are happy or sad. But unlike people with depression, those with bipolar disorder also experience manic episodes, during which they can be very destructive. During these episodes, the individuals may have affairs, sell everything they own, or buy things they can't afford. In this new study, researchers searched for a better way to distinguish between people with each disorder. They looked at 42 patients with depression, 35 with bipolar disorder, and 36 with neither disorder. The researchers scanned the participants' brains using functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI while testing the participants' ability to regulate their emotions. Researchers did this by showing photos of people depicting different emotions sad, happy, fearful, and neutral. For example, a sad photo might show a person overdosing on pills whereas a happy photo might depict a person skiing. The researchers instructed the participants to either passively experience the images or actively regulate their emotions by distancing distancing themselves from what they were seeing. For example, by reminding themselves this is only a picture. The participants rated how strongly they felt After looking at each image, researchers measured the individual's ability to regulate their emotions by subtracting the rating at the passively viewed photos from the rating reported after the participants had actively distanced themselves from the images. Now, if you ask me, I think they presented the research subjects with two complex a task. I may mean, not sound that way to you, and uh, I'll be the first to say that fMRI or functional MRI is an amazingly wonderful tool in psychiatric research. Again, looking at brain activity while people are thinking certain things in real time, but I just think they're asking too much. Well, first, we want you to look at these pictures and experience your feelings, and then we want you to... Uh, passively or rather actively distance yourself from the images. I just you know don't know how they could get good, reliable data by asking the subjects to do that. <clears throat> Nonetheless, um, they did create some findings. Now, unlike previous experiments, this one was conducted while patients were in a normal state of mind and while they were in a depressed state to compare. But none of the subjects were on any psychiatric medication. So the behavioral data revealed that when the participants were feeling normal, in other words not depressed, those with bipolar disorder were much worse at regulating both happy and sad emotions than those with just ordinary depression. But when they were feeling depressed the bipolar patients were actually better at regulating happy emotions. Both groups performed about the same when trying to regulate sad emotions while depressed. The differences in brain activity between the two types of patients were striking. In a non-depressed state, the bipolar patients showed increased brain activity in a region called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which we know is involved in actively regulating emotions. This suggests bipolar patients' brains had to work harder than those of the depressed patients to achieve the same level of emotional control. By contrast, in a depressed state, the bipolar patients showed decreased brain activity compared with the depressed patients' In an area called the rostral anterior cingulate cortex, which acts as a hub connecting the cognitive or thinking and emotional parts of the brain. So even though both the bipolar and the depressed patients showed no behavioral difference in controlling their sadness during bouts of depression, their brain activity revealed a big difference. Well, the researchers feel like next it will be important to study whether the differences in brain activity that they observed in the study can be used to differentiate between patients with these two disorders. Now, if you ask me, they're going to have to break it down a little bit, simplify it. But for now, all we can say is, well... Uh, When you're bipolar and you're dealing with depression, you may be able to better experience the broad range of emotions. And if you're not bipolar and you get depressed, uh, it's going to be harder to show a normal emotional range. Uh, That in and of itself may be interesting. It's uh, not necessarily the case that this type of difference would be apparent to clinicians evaluating patients with either depression or bipolar disorder. Um, That remains to be seen, but um, it would potentially be exciting uh, because clinicians need better ways of distinguishing which type of depression they're dealing with, bipolar or regular depression, because the treatments are different. Bipolar needs mood stabilizers, regular depression, antidepressants. All right, time to take another commercial break. We'll be right back with more. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
2: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
1: This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Again, your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on the show tonight, Fuzzy Thinking. In Depression and Bipolar Disorder, new research finds this effect is real. All right, so this article is, again, looking at the different conditions, depression and bipolar disorder, but talking about how they both have in common the symptom of impaired thinking or fuzzy thinking. People with depression or bipolar disorder often feel their thinking ability has gotten fuzzy or less sharp than before their symptoms began. Now researchers have shown in a very large study that this effect is indeed real, and it's rooted in brain activity differences that show up on advanced brain scans. I think looking at this issue is a major advance. I know from my experience from my own private practice, that patients who have suffered their whole lives with bipolar disorder often report that their memory is very poor. And it seems very clear that a lifetime of suffering these repeated episodes of mania and depression take their toll on the brain. We know from brain imaging studies that either a depressive or a manic episode can result in actual shrinkage of brain tissue, uh, especially in the part of the brain in the temporal lobe known as the hippocampus, which we know is involved in memory. And uh, similarly, repeated episodes of unipolar depression, or just regular depression, not bipolar depression, can also uh, result in actual damage to brain tissue. Now, what's more, the results of this new study add to the mounting evidence that both of these conditions fall on a spectrum of mood disorders rather than that they are completely unrelated. This could potentially transform the way doctors and patients think about, diagnose, and treat them. So in this new paper in the journal Brain, researchers from the University of Michigan Medical School and Depression Center and their colleagues report the results of tests they gave to 612 women, more than two-thirds of whom had experienced either major depression or bipolar disorder. The researchers also present data from detailed brain scans of 52 of the women who took tests while the brain scans were conducted. The number of patients involved in this particular study is large, uh, which makes the findings more meaningful. The researchers pooled data from several University of Michigan studies, including the Prechter longitudinal study of bipolar disorder, and they focused on results from women to take gender differences out of the mix. This is somewhat unique uh, in that usually you don't see just one gender looked at in a study, Uh, Although, for many different reasons, most studies on mood disorders in general and depression in particular, the majority of the subjects are going to be women anyway. Now, seen as groups, women with depression or bipolar disorder did equally badly on the test, which required sustained concentration. The test asked them to react rapidly, when certain letters flashed briefly on a screen amid a random sequence of other letters. Compared with the group with no mental health conditions, the groups with either diagnosis lagged noticeably on this standard test of cognitive control. And while many individual women with depression or bipolar scored as well on the test as healthy participants, Nearly all the test takers in the bottom 5% of performers had one of the two mood disorders. On the brain scans, the researchers found that the women with depression or bipolar disorder had different levels of activity than healthy women in a particular area of the brain. It's called the right posterior parietal cortex. In those with depression, the activity in this area was higher in healthy individuals, while in those with bipolar disorder it was lower. This area where the differences were seen helps control executive function, which refers to activities such as working memory, problem solving, and reasoning. In all, it shows a shared cognitive dysfunction in women with mood disorders, which was pronounced in cognitive control tests, and more nuanced in the brain scans. The findings support the idea of seeing mood disorders dimensionally as a continuum of function to dysfunction across illnesses that are more alike than they are distinct. Traditionally in psychiatry, we look at a specific diagnosis or category, but the neurobiology is not categorical. In other words, if you go looking at brain function using scans, they're not finding huge differences between what clinicians see as categories of disease. This then raises questions about traditional diagnoses. And actually, for years, uh, there's been a large group of psychiatrists who have called for a uh, more neurobiological way of categorizing psychiatric illness than merely uh, what we have now, which is a descriptive set of syndromes or lists of symptoms. Now, um, the view of mood disorders uh, that this paper promotes is growing in favor. The National Institute of Mental Health has put it forth as an area of research focus, but they do not suggest that mental health clinicians should use this test or brain scans given to the study participants to spot risks for or to diagnose a mood disorder. It would be great if we could do that someday, but it's not quite ready for routine, ordinary clinical use in uh, general, ordinary medical practice. The National Institutes of Mental Health is working with researchers to develop better biologically based ways of classifying mental health disorders independent of the clinical diagnostic codes found in the guidebook that clinicians use called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM for short. Uh, most recently, since May of 2013, the DSM edition 5. The research diagnostic criteria, which is what the NIMH is working on, is not meant to replace the system, but it's designed to extend ways of understanding the biological aspects of brain structure, performance, and genetics, rather than the groupings of clinical symptoms based on a patient's current memory of recent symptoms and the clinicians' observations of signs and symptoms. This new effort is a recognition that we need to rely more heavily on what these physical, neurobiological results are telling us. Mental disorders have more overlap in the basic brain and genetic signatures. Researchers hope that findings in brain imaging studies and genetic research will help other researchers who could use these tests as a way to divide research subjects up for further study. For example, researchers could focus on studying people with and without classic mood disorders by first giving them the cognitive control test and then using the expensive brain scanning option only on those with poor performance. This could influence strategies that uh, would include future clinical screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Now, this research involved 150 healthy women, 266 women with major depression that was either active, in other words, they were ill, or inactive, in other words, they were not symptomatic at the time of testing, and 202 women with bipolar disorder who were not in a manic state when tested. All participants took a test that measures the ability to sustain attention and respond quickly to focus one's brain. Then 17 of the healthy women, 19 of the depressed women, and 16 of the bipolar women took the same test again while in the scanner, in the functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner, because of the expense of such scans and limits on funding participants, uh, the fMRI group is too small, you know, 16, 19, um, and 17. This is, put it together, it's a fairly small group to make strong conclusions. Uh, So hopefully this will prove as a, a guide to future studies that will be able to look at larger groups. Well, you know, I, I realize it's a bit on the esoteric side, but the point being that whereas the way we categorize and uh, use criteria to diagnose different psychiatric disorders is, um, has always divided psychiatrists into different camps. There are the l- lumps, the lumpers, and the splitters. The lumpers are those who think there's a lot more in common between the different psychiatric syndromes than the different diagnostic criteria uh, would let on. And the splitters are those who firmly believe that they are all very distinct different syndromes, and it's very important to draw these very rigid distinctions and to put all patients into, you know, very different categories. And in reality, this argument between the lumpers and the splitters has been going on since the turn of the century. Um, <clears throat> the great psychiatrist Emil Kraepelin, who coined the word schizophrenia, uh, you know, thought that there were things in common between it, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and what we now know as dementia. So this is uh, not a new argument. Hopefully, things like more sophisticated brain imagery and clues that we get from genetic testing will help eventually settle these arguments. All right, we're going to take another commercial break, and we'll be back with more after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
1: This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree e and Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on the show, a wonderful op-ed piece about autism that I found and definitely thought well worth sharing with you. Uh, Very informative, very well written. A lot gets talked about where it concerns autism in the media and, a lot of it has to do with the completely and hopelessly bogus myths uh, that childhood vaccines are a cause of autism. This is uh, disproven multiple times over and over again, yet uh, unfortunately uh, desperate and ignorant people cling to this horrifically mistaken notion. Um, but other than that, uh, a lot of people, I think, don't really understand... Or may have misconceptions or myths about what exactly is or isn't autism. And so I thought, well, uh, this would be a great way of giving people more information about it and letting people know that it's something you probably come across in your everyday life. Now for those of you who, you know, have a child or parent or sibling, who's uh, got autism spectrum disorder, this is certainly uh, going to be redundant, not particularly informative, but hopefully for those who are not as familiar, uh, it can be very useful. And this was written by Francesca Happ, uh, president of the International Society for Autism Research, or INSAR, and the director of uh, the MRC Social, Genetic, and Developmental Psychiatry Center at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College in London. Uh, so, I will read from her op-ed piece. Autism is everywhere. Characters with autism, especially high-functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome, abound in TV shows, Films and novels. Think of Sheldon on The Big Bang Theory, Oscar in Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, or Christopher in The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Writers love autistic protagonists for their wry take on how illogical, neurotypical, that is, non autistic people are. And find the autistic genius, a useful plot device for solving unsolvable riddles. Autism is a myth magnet. Couldn't agree more with her there. You can barely look at a newspaper, magazine, or news feed without finding something about autism. A new miracle cure, a claim that the gene for autism has been discovered, or talk of scientists creating Autistic mice. The reality, of course, is very different. Uh, she mentioned she put the gene for autism in quotes. Uh, there is not one gene that is responsible for it. Now this month nearly two thousand scientists and researchers will gather in Salt Lake City for the International Meeting for Autism Research, or IMFAR twenty fifteen. They will discuss and debate the latest findings about this most mysterious of conditions. Since autism was first named more than 70 years ago, much has been learned but many questions remain. Autism is a neurodevelopmental condition characterized by impaired social and communication abilities and rigid and repetitive behavior and interests. One of the major challenges to research is that the manifestation is so varied, giving rise to the notion of the autism spectrum. One child with autism may be silent, aloof, not seeking out his parents even when hurt or upset, and apparently locked into repetitive play, such as lining up toys or spinning coins for hours on end. Another individual may talk incessantly about his own special interests, in football scores, be indiscriminately over-friendly, and unable to tell the difference between a joke and a lie. The wide range of manifestations makes it hard to research causes or treatments for autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. Instead of a gene for autism, for example, there are very likely hundreds of genes that can combine in dozens of ways to predispose a child to ASD. Many researchers now talk about the autisms. Among the topics that will be exercising minds at IMFAR 2015, the largest international meeting focused entirely on autism, are biomarkers, including neural signatures that might help researchers divine more homogeneous subgroups within ASD. What she's talking about, biomarkers, are something that can be biologically measured, neural signatures, that's what, like what we were talking about in the previous article about depression and bipolar disorder, something that you see on a brain scan that tells you what's going on, that clues you into the diagnosis. There are, without a doubt, many different routes to ASD, and one panel session at IMFAR will consider how genomic discovery, looking at genetic profiles, might lead us to discover genetically defined autism subtypes. The purpose of genetic research is to uncover mechanisms that might be modifiable to optimize interventions for individuals with ASD. Our most effective interventions for ASD are currently educational and behavioral approaches. Much of what makes life hard for people with ASD is not the autism itself, but what often accompanies autism, including epilepsy, intellectual disability, sleep problems, anxiety, and depression. Mental health issues may get worse in adolescence or adulthood, even when autism symptoms may be becoming more subtle. Researchers now widely recognize that ASD is not a rare condition and that perhaps 1% of the population has autism. The popular conception of autism is of the child with a faraway gaze and the vast majority of published research is on children with ASD. However, it's important to remember that most people with autism are adults. Concentration on early diagnosis and intervention for ASD has been important, but can leave the impression that later intervention is impossible or ineffective. In fact, little is known about ASD in older adults and equivalently, equivalently intensive interventions could also lead to major improvements in functioning and well-being late in life. So, in other words, uh, what she's talking about is we know that the earlier you diagnose and intervene behaviorally with interventions in children with autism, the better their outcome is going to be. It takes uh, aggressive and extensive behavior therapy as early as possible to uh, minimize the symptoms in children. It is therefore encouraging, she goes on to say, that new research will be presented at MFAR 2015 on adult interventions, aging, and factors associated with adult outcomes in ASD. As examples in popular media illustrate, the stereotype of autism is male. Males outnumber females with ASD perhaps four to one with a sex ratio ske- more skewed at the high-functioning end of the spectrum and less unbalanced among those with intellectual disability. The source of this imbalance is not known, although it is not unique to ASD. The developing male appears to be gen- generally more vulnerable. Sex differences in ASD is a growing topic, and new research will be presented at MFAR 2015. Understanding the origins and nature of sex differences is important to improve recognition and services for girls and women on the autism spectrum. Increasingly, women with ASD are telling their own stories, and researchers attending IMFAR 2015 will benefit from a panel session focused on the first-person experience of people with ASD. For autism research to take the next leap forward, we need perhaps three big initiatives. First, we need genetic research on the scale seen for schizophrenia. Tens and eventually hundreds of thousands of participants with good information about each one's skills and difficulties. This scale of research is needed to deal with that heterogeneity in the autism spectrum in order to discover gene pathways, and hence mechanisms, to optimize the outcome for each individual. Second, we need people with autism and their families to donate brain tissue when they die. These two aims are underway, thanks to initiatives funded by Autism Speaks and the Simons Foundation. The third initiative is arguably even more important. Create open access, globally accessible diagnostic tools for low-income settings. More than eighty percent of research is carried out in high-income countries with a bias of samples for wealthy white individuals, but eighty percent of those living with autism are in low-income countries. Diagnostic tools are currently highly expensive and impractical in these settings. Making ASD diagnosis and services available to all is not only a moral imperative, it is a scientific one. Establishing rates and developmental trajectories in very different environments will shed light on the etiology and nature of autism. It is time for autism researchers to look outwards and think globally. I really like um, the last point she makes, especially uh, because the diagnostic tools are not widely available because they're so expensive. This explains why there's so much written and talked about how you you see autism uh, more common in wealthy uh, white areas. So it's really not about uh, the demographics of the disease, it's who can afford the diagnostic testing. Well, if there are articles that come out about the IMFAR 2015 meeting, shared new insights in autism, I'll be sure to bring them to you. Have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until next time. If not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Thank you very much for listening. Good night.
1: This is America's Webradio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you.